Hello, and welcome to another episode of Intelligence for Your Life, the podcast. I'm Gib Gerard. Uh, our guest this week is Dr. David Bissonnette. He is the author of a new book uh, that, that is it's called Insatiable. It's going it, to, I don't know how to explain this. We have a lot of bad habits, is my point. And, and sometimes, you know, you got to hear, you got to hear that the stuff that you're eating and doing is, is slowly killing you. I had to hear it. Uh, uh, but I think it's it's got some really good useful takeaways. We have a we have a uh, nutrition epidemic in our country, and uh, he has some solutions. So we're gonna uh, hear that in a second, folks. Uh, I know we've been kind of sporadic in some of our episodes, but we have a whole bunch of great interviews, including this one that are that are coming up. We're trying to get ahead on some interviews so that uh, that we have we'll have them more consistently in the future because. Uh, you know, ultimately, uh, I, I like doing this. So here we go. My interview with Dr. David Bissonnette. Dr. David Bissonnette, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Uh, I just really appreciate you being with us. So thank you. Well, thank you, uh, Gib, for having me uh, on. It's a pleasure. Uh, you are the author, in addition to the research that you've done, and, and you're an academic, but you are the author of the new book, Insatiable. Uh, tell us, uh, tell us what that's about. I mean, I, I know, but for, for our audience, tell us what, tell us why you felt this is a book that needs to be written and, and why you wanted to write a book about our nation's unappeasable hunger. Right. So the full title is, is Insatiable, a nation's unappeasable hunger. And, and it stemmed from my research in obesity and also my work as a clinician, as a dietitian working with obese people several years ago. And what really came out of it was the, the failure rate of uh, the weight loss diets. And so, you know, the main therapeutic modality, right, the main way of treating obesity back in the 80s when I was a practitioner was weight loss, right, caloric uh, restriction in favor of weight loss. And, and there was always this discussion about, well, is it a high-carb, low-carb, high-fat, mm-hmm. low-fat? And, you know, and, and we went along that path, and, and we got people to lose weight, and, oh, well, we invariably saw them regain weight. Uh, but it was when I became a, an academic that I, I realized the degree to which that weight regain was actually occurring. And I started to think, well, there's something really unusual going on here. Are we really treating this appropriately? And to that point, uh, we saw, uh, as we see now, physicians um, prescribing uh, appetite suppressants and they're going mm-hmm. into gastric bypass surgery. Uh, because diets don't work. And there was a good review done in 2007 that showed that the success rate, when they look at it over seven years, uh, is about 1% to 3%. Wow. So that wow. got me started. Yeah. I mean, that's, a, I mean that's, an insanely, that's an insanely low number, right? It's, obviously, it, it, like, it's, that, means yeah. di- that literally means diets don't work. Like, yes, any diet, any, any time you change up your eating habits, you're going to lose a little bit of weight. But that's, that's an insane yeah. That's insane. Well, yeah, it, absolutely. And what it was actually uncovering, this was a work done by Tracy Mann, who was working uh, at the uh, University of Minnesota. And she showed not only is the, you know, the success rate very poor, mm-hmm. but she also found that 33 to 67% of people gain, regain more weight than they had originally. And she also found that one of the greater predictors of future weight gain is having been on a diet. So so the takeaway from this wow. is dieting in the way that we are currently doing it, which sure. is, you know, pretty severe restrictions, really appears to worsen our situation and really cause future weight gain problems. 
Okay. That is the takeaway. Yeah. That, okay. So that is a very doom and gloom thing. It's like, so you're overweight right now. Uh, yep. You you changing your diet to lose weight is is a good predictor of you gaining more weight long term. What yeah. are you supposed to do? And 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 also, what are you supposed to do in a context of a world where? Well, let's start with what are you supposed to do? And then I want to talk about some of the social stigmas associated with what we're talking about. Right. Well, you know, the, the better approach, right, would be um, factoring in the exercise component. Now, mm-hmm. the the research on exercise and diet isn't that promising, but it's a little more promising. The problem with exercise is that uh, the way urbanization has taken hold of America, the way we've become urbanites and the way the whole you know, city structures set up is that it's virtually impossible to expend the amount of energy really required to keep weight in check mm-hmm. in light of, as you mentioned, the calorically dense calories that we're consuming. So easy to overshoot our requirements, right? Right. So so there was a study that was done oh, way back in the 90s and this guy developed uh, you know, a technique using doubly labeled water. And really what that means is that uh, you can measure hydrogen and oxygen in the body in free living people, where it's really the gold standard. It was a break away from those ghastly chambers that kept people, you know, confined into a chamber and you could measure their calories that way. This technique allowed people to live freely. And what he found was that in order to to really um, burn, you know, the amount of energy that you need to burn on a day-to-day basis, that's above and beyond your normal, you know, energy requirement, is something like five to 800 calories a day, above and beyond. Mm. And when you work that out, it, it becomes virtually impossible to do. Uh, what we, you know, I just came from an obesity conference in San Diego, and they were lamenting. Uh, uh, so I, I want to just put this in a slightly yeah. simpler terms for people. The bottom line is that when sure. you're talking about yeah. eating over maintenance calories, right? So you, you, everybody needs a certain amount of calories yeah. in order to live. We, we do. Uh, yeah. But you're sure, saying sure. that the amount of calories, you, you basically, you can never outrun a Snickers bar. You can never, not to pick on Snickers, but you can never outrun junk food. Yeah. Like uh, you, you, it's so eat, much easier correct. to not eat 500 calories than it is to burn 500 calories. Right. It's essentially right. what so diff- where we're getting So to. difficult to do. And then we're back to that problem. If you calorically restrict 500, 800, 1,000 calories, you'll lose the weight, you'll gain it back. Mm-hmm. So we have, a, we have a problem, right? So, so, but the amount of energy that we need to burn. So we go back to the 1950s. There was really good work done back then. And they were showing that, um, you know, that um, the farmer, for example, that was used as a standard was in fact burning Five to eight hundred calories and more out in the field and doing that. Yeah, and they were eating like like you wouldn't believe, right? They weren't gaining weight mm-hmm. and they weren't going to the gym. That was the whole point: is that you can't do five to eight hundred calorie expenditure by going to a gym and keeping it up. But these guys had it worked into their activity of daily living. So this is where the discussion needs to go is that it's not about the gym, it's about how much movement, how much activity of daily living are we doing, and can we top that off with our little two, three hundred calories at the gym? Well, yeah, probably. But the problem is that we are, um, you know, we are sedentary, right? Right. Very sedentary, and that's the problem. Yep. Well, I mean, and and here's the thing. We've we've talked a lot on our shows about 
about how you know how much better it is for you. I mean, just standing desk alone, how much better it is yep. for you to just do light exercise throughout the day versus a yep. one hour intense gym session in the morning. In fact, the yep. person that never goes to the gym and stands for you know thirty minutes for every hour. Uh, just that alone is in better in better overall health than someone that is going to the gym for an hour a day. It's a it's those are crazy concepts. Yeah, yeah, and and the idea, if you really want to bring it one step further, is to include activity of daily living that is mandatory that you mm-hmm. cannot do without. So one example is one of the books I wrote was a textbook. Actually, I stayed sedentary for extended period of time, and guess what? I gained weight. So how did I overcome it? Well, I ended up packing my suitcase, my, my briefcase with 45 pounds of books, and I walked to work. And that was overall about five to six miles a day, and I did it three days a week. Mm-hmm. And I did some sport in the evening, and I actually lost the weight. But here's the thing. I had to go to work. I didn't have the choice, mm-hmm. you know, and I had to walk. And those are the kinds of, you know, those kinds of paradigms that, that you know, you don't grow tired of because you have to do them. Another right. way of doing it that I've used in, in counseling is, you know, go to the grocery store, walk, order, get your food together, have the grocery store Um, bring it back home and then you can walk afterwards to the bank and if that becomes part of your routine then it becomes mandatory and you are consistently burning those Mm -hmm. calories Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i mean so what you're talking about is is a lifestyle change right like that's essentially what lifestyle it's 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 not diet you're not restricting your calories with a fad or with something like that you are you are living out a new lifestyle that involves expending more calories Correct. Yep. It's the way to do it. And as I mentioned, the urban setting that we live in makes, you know, what I suggest at this stage, it's a little difficult because grocery stores are in shopping malls and they tend to be, you know, farther away. Right. So these are so these are things that we've got to work out. We've got to find ways to increase our daily activity. Correct. Mm -hmm. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, the, The problem is that, you know, most of our lives are designed around our cars. Right. And life, life gets complicated and, you know, not necessarily everybody can do the walk to work thing. For some, it's a physical impossibility. Correct. But the other thing that's coming into play is the fact that we are um, we are, um, you know, in front of screens for extended period of time. And they've done some work with the youth. Right. So six to eight hours a day is what children now and adolescents are now facing right. uh, in terms of screen time. Right. And they have become exceedingly sedentary to the point, which I found very shocking, that they're actually developing diseases of old age. Yeah, I've seen that. I mean, look, we, the, for the longest time, we called uh, type, type 1 diabetes was juvenile diabetes and type 2 diabetes was adult diabetes. And we Correct. have changed that uh, yep. to, to just type 1 and type 2 because it no mm-hmm. longer is, uh, is emblematic of being, you know, of, of, of aging into diabetes with poor, poor habits because we've seen kids get them. Yeah, and in addition to that, we see 15, 16, 18-year-olds with one or two uh, cardiovascular risks. Wow. Okay, so uh, I hear you that we need to make certain lifestyle changes uh, is, is there another step? Is there a, I, I'm not asking for a quick fix, but I, I understand no. lifestyle change is not going to be a quick fix. It's going to mean in, in some cases, it may mean getting a new job or moving, moving cities or places because 
because you have to. Uh, yeah, how do you yeah. how do you begin to combat that? Well, you know, the, the book goes in. So the the book is a deep investigation into the obesity crisis, and this is a little bit how it went. So I'm looking at obesity. I'm seeing the the failure rate, and I'm going, "What is going on?" Right? Mm-hmm. Nothing is really working. So I t- I step back from this. I have a, a background in epidemiology, so I'm interested. You know, that's the study of disease in the mm-hmm. population. And I step back from that and I look at the obesity and I'm going, what is going on? And what do I pick up on? I pick up on the fact that it's not only obesity, mm-hmm. it's cardiovascular disease, it's diabetes, it's depression, anxiety, suicide ideation, hopelessness, loneliness, sure. substance abuse, mm-hmm. right? And all of these epidemics, they're all epidemics, mm-hmm. are starting to emerge and then what I what I realize is obesity is only one epidemic among the many. So then the question is, well, what's generating this? Right. Right. Is there a deeper problem sure. that's going on? Yeah. Are they are and they are they, they coordinated or are they, is one causing the other? Like, have you, are you seeing no, no, a, they're a, not. A they're correlations. Not, they're all, causation? No, nah, some correlation and some not correlation, but stemming from one common problem. And what is that common problem? What, the sedentary <laughs> and that lifestyle? Problem, or are no. you going to give it away? I mean, I, I understand you don't want to give away the whole book, but, no, but this is presenting no, the problem itself. Absolutely. And and the evan- and I gave a, a talk at the International um, Conference for Obesity and Chronic Disease, and, and, and it wasn't popular. It really wasn't popular. It goes mm-hmm. against, you know, the, the clinical view at the time. Uh, it's the breakdown of the American family. Mm-hmm. And that was actually um, quite in a very intriguing way. It was brought up by the Surgeon General of the United States, Richard Carmona, back in 2001. And he said to a, at a breakfast meeting in, I think, San Francisco to a bunch of clinicians, he said, the obesity epidemic is a socio-demographic problem and cannot be solved by individual clinical counseling. First, you've got to solve the social demographic problem. Mm. He he hit it right on. And then all of a sudden, that just disappeared from the landscape. And we went on as individual counselors, counseling people on diets and finding, you know, putting little band-aids and and trying to manage the symptoms. Of course, they don't work because obesity since that time and even before just kept on growing and growing, right? Interesting. uh, 74% of adult Americans are either overweight or obese and 30 percent of youth are mm-hmm. either overweight and obese as well and and so how does the breakdown of the american family and i have some i have some guesses but how does that get you to obesity and depression and all of the things we're talking about all right these comorbidities that we've established yeah so what we what we find is with the breakdown of the american family we find a rise in single parent families mm-hmm. and single not, and not to say that there are some single parent families that th- that do okay right the majority of them are actually affected by poverty and 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 what happens with poverty poor nutrition and mm-hmm. we know that that has already been established for years. So you've got mom or dad, but oftentimes it's mom as a single parent, two jobs, poor, mm-hmm. you know, no time to really get the groceries, no time to really um, make meals that make sense. So mm-hmm. you, get, you get the latchkey kids, you get the kids, 
you know, doing microwaves. You got family meals less than once per week. And, and so that has all been coordinated. Yeah, it, they're, they're, it's all been sort of correlated with poor outcomes of that kind. Yeah. So I'm hearing you say that, that that seems to create a context for a greater reliance um, um, on processed foods in your daily diet. Processed food, hyper-processed food, poor nutrition. Um, absolutely, yes. Um, uh, but but interestingly, uh, when I was looking at all of the literature, there was a common point that kept coming up, and that was family meals. And the, the researchers found that family meals was an indicator of uh, you know of um, let's say um, a thriving family, or 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 at least having better impact on the children. And mm-hmm. their cutoff was more than three family meals a week is kind of you know the ideal to aim for but a majority of the families are you know less than one we have seen we've done studies uh and and talked about on the show a lot about not only uh what you're talking about the impact of family meals on nutrition and mental health but also the impact of fam- that family meals have on grades even uh that the that oh, yeah. th- that three sure. times a week sitting down as a family and having a meal and yep. again yep. any version yep. of a family even a single parent home but your argument is sure. the single parent home is just much less likely to have the time to make sure that that happens to do it right. So Correct. so we see that breakdown and and you see sort of a drop off in uh, in mental health, but also we've reported again on on the drop off in grades that even occur in in, oh, yeah. the, in that context. Sure, sure, absolutely, yeah. And there's so much more. I explore so much okay. more in the book. I'm sure. Yeah. I'm sure. So okay. So that that makes sense for the youth element of it. How do you yeah. begin? So I'm I'm assuming you know uh, yeah. I'm I am a child of divorced parents. So I yeah. Uh, I you know I'm I'm an adult now. How do I begin to combat some of these habits and elements that are in my life now that may or may not have originated sure. as a child? Like I understand I understand your point about. Childhood yeah. diabetes, these these geriatric conditions that are occurring in, yeah. in juveniles, yeah. like all makes yeah. sense. But how do I fix myself? Well, the first thing is that dietary habits are set in youth, right? So in single parent families, as we're talking about that, but not strictly, uh, whatever mom and dad or whatever the single parent decides to start feeding the children, and we know by surveys that the food oftentimes introduces. Um, you know, foods of high taste sensation, bliss point foods mm-hmm. that get the children addicted. So this sets the pattern for future food intake. Okay. So now we're adults and okay, so now there's been some weight gain, but the weight gain is really going on as an adult. And we're trying to, uh, you know, embrace new dietary habits. Mm-hmm. Very difficult mm-hmm. because, you know, our default is, you know, the chips or the, you know, the foods that were comforting for us. The The burgers, the pizza, absolutely, yeah. So we that's our default. We we invariably go back to that. So so what is the approach? Well the approach is is a bit of a radical shift. And what's nice about radical shifts is that they're not numerous. It's not like a diet where you've got 10 points that you've got to follow. And I talk about that in the book. There's really just key things because the the research is showing that, um, you know, for instance, soda pop, um, sugary beverages represent about 50% of our sugar intake mm-hmm. uh, as a nation, right? So cutting out soda pop 
not not negotiating with it like dietitians used to be taught well you can have some soda pop but it's you know it's you got to be careful no 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 that doesn't work because soda pop is very addictive sweetened mm-hmm. beverages overall so you cut them out completely right it's a radical shift what else do you cut out you cut out this is not popular french fries french fries dominates absolutely dominates and that's in the in the life of children as well right so, you know uh, french fries you just cut them out and there's no negotiating you don't go back to it because more than likely you were brought up with them and you're addicted to them and it's going to be difficult and you have a little bit of them and then they bring out the memories and you're back to them you just cut them out completely so soda pop okay french fries and all right the, the really tough one is chips chips of all kind because that's a multi-billion dollar industry mm-hmm. in the united states right. right so so you cut out the chips those would be like the three things that you would work on to try to rehabilitate right in the first steps uh, your dietary habits they're radically eliminated from the diet so okay all right so but <laughs> that's not a diet <laughs> i mean that's this goes back to no. your so this yeah. is this, you're talking about this is this is a lifestyle change you were saying yep. i will yep. not i not in moderation not in not in a restriction i will yep. not have sugary sugary sodas and, and and soft drinks i will not have potato chip or any kind of uh snack chips uh or uh french, or fries, french fries yeah yep so you're, you're, and you're going to replace you're going to replace those that french was going to be my next with, question absolutely so now you're replacing the french fries so you're kind of modeling a healthy diet but you're not restricting you're not going into caloric deficit you're regulating the way you eat it's kind of like the first step um you know i teach my students you know for weight loss for example right the, the you know get on the diet and lose the weight but really the approach is to stabilize the weight Find what their caloric requirement is, stabilize them on the day, have them eat normally, but not in a restrictive waste, but new foods, eliminating those uh, those nefarious foods and enjoying life as such without the restriction, normalizing. And that's right. really what it is. It's normalizing your eat, making good choices, eliminating those critical foods that need to be eliminated uh yeah and that's you know the and then of course you know lifestyle and exercise and things of that nature but yeah the 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 caloric restriction doesn't work right and we know that now it's like official (laughs) it doesn't work yeah i want to take a quick break and when we come back i want to talk a little bit about some of the social stigma around what you're doing and how to and and how to form some some healthier habits because i i okay it's not that i take issue with what you're saying i agree with what you're saying i've experienced a lot of what you're saying i just there are some things in the real reality of changing our lives that I would like to, that I talked about. So uh, real quick break, and then we're going to come back with Dr. David Bissonnette. Doctor, before the break, you and I were talking about, uh, you know, you were talking about getting rid of three key foods, talking about, you know, sitting down and having dinner with your kids and what that does for their long-term health. But we're talking about like, okay, it's too late for me now. Uh, I, you know, I, I grew up eating pizza and these comfort foods. So the three foods, again, sugary drinks, uh, potato chips and french fries uh lots of research on habit has said that it's the it's much easier to quit something if you replace it with something so let's talk about some elements and some things that you like like you know some things that have worked for me for example is um the unsweetened um 
slight, lightly fa- flavored sparkling waters that are really popular right now to replace soda in a lot of contexts. Yeah, the um, well, you said lightly sweetened, but there are a lot of these um, these beverages lightly flavored, uh, that, unsweetened. Ah, that's lightly what flavored. You the, the, okay. Like like uh, uh, Lacroix, the, which sure, has no sure, sugar yeah. or sweetener in it. Absolutely. Good choice, actually. Very, very good choice. So that's a replacement for the sugary beverages, right? Absolutely. Very good. Yep. Yes. And then uh, and then, you know, the the you know, the the potato chips, um, you know, I I want to bring into this discussion the idea that, you know, there's something that really bad that happened in the 1980s. And that that's that the um, the food industry um, got involved in. uh, this uh, sort of um, marketing of food as a snack, so we became sure. a snacking, you know, became a snacking nation, mm-hmm. uh, and and as a result, we we went from eating three to ten times a day in for thirty percent of the population, okay. right? It's it's become uh, insidious within the culture, so we eat all the time. So we've got this snacking concept, and so I'd like to sort of you know, propose that we disengage from the snacking context. Because okay. I know that, you know, we could be talking about all kinds of different snacks, but, you know, no, actually. We should be actually moving away from snacks and having our three meals or our two meals um, a day. Um, and we can talk about the quality of these meals. But snacking has had, um, you know, a, a terrible effect. The, this mm. movement was called the shareholder value movement, came out of the 80s. And it was about, um, you know, increasing the di- the, the dividends uh, to shareholders who are investing, you know, in tech as industry and so forth. And the food industry had a huge problem because the food was saturated, right? Our American inventory was saturated with food so they said well how would you do this well they created this you know campaign uh to increase snacking and that's what really took place and that increased the dividends and returns on investment for food the food industry and so we're caught with this snacking mentality but that actually has to change so uh, okay but that i feel like that's a habit uh, that is gonna it's harder to break than yeah, than it is. than just okay we're gonna cut this stuff out I mean like yeah. what you're proposing makes a lot of sense but I yeah. feel like there are some uh, elements to this that yep. are are that are gonna get us back <laughs> on that diet cycle and that are that are, oh. are so difficult yep. that that it that we're setting people up for failure so I, I want I want to talk about how to increase the success rate in that because a lot of us and i've talked to some some habit experts uh in the past like um uh author bj fogg and tiny habits and we talked i've talked to them about you know one of the key things is to figure out what your anchor habit is what your what your triggering behaviors are and like and that takes a lot of work and effort and 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 it's a lot of opportunities for failure in this process absolutely but notice what i'm proposing are three things only right and 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 to diminish snacking but remember you're not on any caloric restriction mm-hmm. you're eating three meals a day uh, you've only eliminated three foods it's the easiest approach there is no setup for failure is it you know because you're eating well during the day so the propensity to want a snack is sure. ac- actually greatly yeah it's actually greatly diminished that's so good. you've got you got the bubbly water which is you know good and you could be drinking that and that certainly fills but you know the, my formula is not set up for failure it's actually set up to um, you know to actually succeed now if you throw in exercise 
Exercise has a bit of an anorectic effect, meaning that it cuts appetite. So that's another way mm-hmm. to sort of control things. I've all, I also find that the healthier I eat, the healthier I want to eat. And the more that I'm exercising, sure. the more I want to eat healthy. Because I, I get a very strong yep. connection between the yep. way my body feels and the, and the way that I'm fueling it. And when I have that strong yep. connection, it, it is super helpful for me in, to maintain yep. healthy. But yep. the problem with that is that if something interrupts, like a uh, shoulder injury or something interrupts my workout sure. process, yep. Yep. I'm now yep. setting myself up to, to go back to the comfort foods. I mean, this happened to me when, uh, when lockdowns first occurred, right? My gym closed. Uh, I couldn't, right. I couldn't sure. exercise anymore. Yep. And so all yep. of a sudden, I'm noticing like, oh, I'm having more alcohol in the evenings. I'm having more snack foods. Uh, I, and before I knew it, I'd, I'd gained five or 10 pounds. Yeah, so easy. Yeah. Yep. yep, that's right. And, you know, and back to lifestyle, right? So the gym helps, but just like that conference, right? The conclusion from that obesity conference, the gym works so long as the grant to do the study was, you know, was working. Soon as the grant uh, ran out, people fell off the exercise program and that was the end of it so so this exercise in the gym is always short-lived i saw no evidence of all the studies that i was looking at at this obesity conference that showed long-term sustainability of this kind of exercise it wasn't there of of gym exercise of like weightlifting gym exercise yeah 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 and especially among the older right you might get a little more sustainability among the young they've got vigor and they have lots of time compared to to us that have so many responsibilities and so forth so it's not sustainable so it's back to a lifestyle absolutely okay uh now the link between you know obesity and uh, the link between obesity and, and chronic illness, it's, it's strong. I mean, we've seen, I, 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 I feel like we can all kind of agree. Okay. If you are obese, you are more likely to, uh, and, uh obesity is a difficult thing to, to characterize because of BMI It's particularly yeah. like, I know in the weightlifting community, people are like, sure. BMI is completely useless because you look Correct. at somebody who is at like 4% body fat, but their BMI says they're, they're, you know, sure. morbidly obese. Sure. Um, Correct. So you, you can run into problems in those places, but for the most part, higher BMI yeah. means higher health, uh, higher comorbidities when, as you age, right? Like, well, it means higher body fat usually, mm-hmm. right? Right. Yep. Uh, yep. I, I, at the same time, we yep. have a, and I think this is a, a net positive because I don't think shame works for, fi- for fixing a lot of this stuff. We have, no. a, we have a body positivity movement, which I think is great. I don't. I don't think shaming people into losing weight, into fitting into a social norm, is is gonna. It works. Uh, how do you right. combat having this conversation about health and and what the research is showing with people's perceptions of themselves and the psychology of their motivation in this process? Well, that's a good point. The you know what we what's observed in the, at the clinical level is that clinicians are rarely tackling the obesity problem mm-hmm. because the patient is actually coming to the clinic with a series of comorbidities, right? That mm-hmm. take you know hypertension and uh, you know hypercholesterolemia and back pain mm-hmm. and all kinds of issues. So they have a half an hour and they deal with those issues. And they rarely deal with the obesity because it's, you know, first of all, um, there is a perceived patient noncompliance, 
right? The patients don't follow the diets anyways is what's being concluded. Right. And so they don't bother at this stage to prescribe but they diets. Will ta- they will take a pill. And then so yes. you, you can live in that yep. space and that becomes the, that's right. the solution. Yeah, it's the pill solution. Correct. But, you know, that's not a really good solution, no. right? It's not a good solution. So one of the problems associated with that is the pill removes appetite. And appetite is a prime indicator of health. That's a particular problem in youth. And they are actually doing research in using appetite suppressants in young kids. And, and, you know, absolutely wrong approach, but they're doing it because these kids are not just slightly overweight. Uh, You know, we've got two to five-year-olds, 20% of them are obese now. Mm -hmm. So, you know, well, that's insane. Right. So how do you deal with it? Well, it's just the pill. And that's what they're doing. That's what they're kind of following. But it's a it's a big it's very problematic right. to do that, to play with the appetite. Yep. So that's in the youth. Uh, and yep. again, you know, I, I, I hear that. And uh, you want to start helping these kids. Well, the problem yep. with appetite suppressants is there are side effects, A, and B, you uh, generally, maybe I'm wrong, but my understanding on uh, on these kinds of, of interventions yep. is that as soon as you remove the intervention, uh, the core behaviors come roaring back and sometimes worse oh, than before. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, conference I went to five years ago. So the, the American Medical Association now advocates for appetite suppressants to be used permanently because obesity is now seen as an organic disease, not a behavioral disease. Mm-hmm. So just like diabetes... Obesity gets, you know, diabetes gets insulin. Mm-hmm. Uh, obesity gets appetite suppressants, and there there are now, um, you know, um, strategies by doctors to keep patients on them permanently. Um, but that again is going to have consequences, right? Like we're going to well, run into problems they're, with that. Sure, they're they're developing appetite suppressants that have less side effects, so they're not as bad as. Um, you know, some of the earlier ones. But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's a problem. Right. And, and, it's, a, and it's a problem. And it's a, it's something that you're, it's a point you're trying to make, right? You cut these things out. Are there? Go yeah. ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, no, I was going to say because, you know, it's just like gastric bypass in children. Right. And, mm-hmm. and, and okay, well, that's great that the, you know, the blood sugars are normalizing and things of that nature. But what got them to be um, you know, super obese in the first place. And that's what's not being addressed. Right. Uh, and again, how like oh, uh, that's in the youth. And I, in, in some ways, it's easier uh, with kids because we can control. They don't they're not making the decision at the grocery store. Right. We're making right, the decision right. for them. Right. And we have the same problem, of course, with adults. Right. You know, the adults also have the same problems. There's there is a failure rate, but it, it's actually regarded as the most efficacious and sustainable weight loss method at the moment. Is gastric bypass. Gastric bypass. Okay. Yeah. Um, and yep. uh, it, because it is the one that has the best the best numbers in the long run. Well, the best numbers, the best outcome, right? So medically, uh, blood sugars come down, blood pressure comes down, mm. joint problems go down. Uh, so all these measurable outcomes uh, are actually um, positive. Mm. Yeah, and that's what they use objectively. Uh, okay. Uh, but you're saying let's, let's beat that. Let's, let's do it this way. Well, yeah, let's, yeah, let's beat it. Let's, let's change this around. We're going towards a medical disaster. Mm -hmm. This, the, the obesity is, you know, the, the obesity and all the secondary diseases 
have a hefty, hefty price tag. You know, our um, our health expenditure is about three point seven trillion dollars a year. Seventy five percent of it, well, sixty to seventy percent, is tied to obesity. Wow. And yeah, and 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 it's growing, right? So I think they estimate by twenty thirty, it'll be sixteen trillion dollars. And and most economists will argue that uh, our our system can sustain it. So we're going to see a collapse of the health uh, financial system because it can't be sustained. Okay, I mean, uh, yeah, all right. <laughs> I, that that's that becomes like a, a different. That's yeah. where you guys as clinicians have to have to begin to step in and find things that work yep. so that we, that the system can can, uh, can well, adapt. Yes. Or that we can, and, or, and, or, yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. but and, as an and, individual as an individual listening to this who's maybe struggled with yep. their weight, and to your point, sure. if you're struggling with your weight now, the odds statistics are you've been struggling with your weight f- since you were a child. Uh, you're a parent of an obese child, or you are sure. you are you are yourself yep. obese right now, and yep. you have and I've seen this in people, you have failed because of to your point. Diets continue to fail, yep. right? Uh, and in yep. fact, diets are a predictor of future over uh, being future of uh, being overweight in the future. Um, uh, so you begin to feel bad about yourself, which is then becomes a part of a, an emotional eating pattern. And then uh, so you you eat foods that you crave to feel better, and then and you and you perpetuate the cycle in yourself. So one of the things that people have done to try to break this up is to say, hey, I'm going to accept who I am as I am, which I think is great. Uh, yeah. But but you're you're going to be seeing if we don't fix this in individuals, we're going to be seeing a systemic problems as, as we go on. Yeah. And I I, I I I want to know for people that have struggled with their weight their whole lives. What is it like? Is it just those three foods? Is that the first step? If you could just start there, uh, because I think some people believe that's not possible. Well, yeah. Well, actually, you know, you you mentioned people feel bad about their weight, but actually they feel concerned about their weight. Okay. The feel bad is you know dependent on the environment that they're living in, but you know, but it's concern really because what this obesity. Uh, is leading to is to disease. It's leading to morbidity. It's, mm-hmm. you know, people like to say, well, they accept your weight, but actually uh, doctors, scientists, everyone agrees that obesity is actually a health problem, right? A mm-hmm. serious health problem. Sure. So so it's going to lead to a diminished quality of life. So we, we need to be concerned about it and individuals need to be concerned about it as well, not just society, mm-hmm. right? The the individual. So what? So yes, it sounds rather simplistic and I'll tell you what, uh, the simplicity of it is what makes it work because, you know, it, it really is a matter of aiming at the foods that you are addicted to. Mm-hmm. Now, pick out three. I picked out three that are very popular, but, sure. you know, you, you can talk about, you know, if you look at the data, you could say, well, what is really driving obesity? Two things driving obesity is sugary beverages and bakery products, believe it or not, that are actually measured. Bakery products and 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 uh, sugary beverage. So you could shift that around and say, well, maybe maybe it's the desserts that I'm eating. I you know I I remember back when I was um, at another university that uh, the the chair said, you know, since I've become chair, I put on about 15 pounds. She said, can can you help me? And I said, well, I said um, I said Gladys, just uh, cut out the desserts. She said, I don't eat desserts. I said, oh yes, you do. When you go to the chair meetings, what are you eating? Oh, she says, you're right. We're eating desserts there. So she cut, that's all she did. She cut out the desserts. Within a year, dropped 15 pounds. Wow. 
Wow. Yeah, because it was a deviance in, you know, she didn't, she was eating well otherwise, but there was something that came in that, you know, insidiously made its way into her living pattern. Right. And she was really not really aware of it, right? right. But sure enough, yeah, she's eating desserts. Absolutely. Yeah. And so very easy to do. Lee, you know, I've had discussions with patients that said, you know, how about sugary beverages? And it's like, no way, no way am I going to cut that out. That's mm-hmm. just like a regular. And these are what people that were drinking 14, 16 ounce Dr. Peppers a day. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Okay. And so it's not the norm, but but we are actually consuming significant amount of sugar, right? Yeah. Clearly, as a national average, about 125 pounds of sugar per person Un- per year. Unreal. That's just the average. And if you go down into teenagehood, it's about 250. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, and, and so yes, cut out the sources of those sugars. And what are they? Sugary beverages and desserts. And then for the fat perspective, that's where the French fries and the chips come in. Yeah. Yeah. Easy to do. Those, well, those, easy to say, we, easy to easy to quantify, but for yes. a lot of people, very hard to do. Uh, very I'm, hard to do, but focused. But yeah, yeah but but focused. And, and these are small changes and you just need to turn yep. them into lifestyle changes. These are these are Absolutely. non-negotiables. Um, I have found I have found that uh, when I drink, I don't drink a lot of soda, but when I do, if I have real sugar sodas, it goes a long way to making me drink less because real sugar versus uh, high fructose corn syrup. By the time I've had half of a soda, I'm 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 full. My body's like, we don't want any more sugar. And so my body starts to turn it off my desire for it. Um, that makes a huge difference for me. Do you see a difference between real sugar and and sort of processed high fructose corn syrup? Sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, not necessarily uh, high fructose corn syrup, but um, stevia and all of the artificial sweeteners, right? Okay. So a lot of people are saying, well, listen, I'll get the, the, I'll I'll take the sugar-free and that that should do it. And what the research is showing uh, is that we may not take in the calories at that time with that beverage, right. but we recuperate it later. Because it makes you crave so, sweet because your body goes, oh, makes, we were supposed yeah, to get sugar and we didn't get it. We probably need we more We didn't of it. get it. And it maintains the desire for sugar. So your brain still keeps that that cognition, right? That awareness and mm. desire for sugar. And you will find sugar later on. And that's why a radical shift is important because a radical shift removes the artificially sweetened beverages and the regular uh, beverages and it removes that that um uh, you know that hedonic or pleasure center of the brain right it's addiction to sugar or it's seeking of sugar it kind of sort of um trains it not to look for it anymore Mm -hmm. but you know and and people don't quite get that they think well an artificial sweetener that'd be okay there's no calories Mm -hmm. well actually yeah, it, it, it has a double-edged sword. So we seek it later, and the rat studies show the rats end up eating more calories later. So, you know, yeah. So, so, so you can't do the alternative problem. sweeteners either? No, so absolutely you, uh, not. Uh, yeah. Uh, I yep. mean, you know, you, like, uh, you've given us a lot to chew on, uh, <laughs> metaphorically. <laughs> metaphorically. <laughs> how, about, yeah. how about other processed snacks that are not necessarily potato chips? So, like... I, I've done Whole30. I do about once a year where I take 30 days and I cut out a lot of processed yeah. foods. And I, I love the way sure. that my body feels. And I try to eat close to that all the time. But I find that that's, it can be unsustainable uh, in, in life. Right. Whole30, which is, which is you know, uh, uh, more restrictive. But, but along the lines of what you're talking about. Um, well, 
Go ahead. Yeah, and to your to your point, right? Extensive um, restriction of many different, and that's what makes it difficult, mm-hmm. right? And that's why the approach for radical shifts that are very focused make it makes it a lot easier. Mm-hmm. But but indeed, yeah. So you know what what can you what can we eat afterwards? Well, instead of well, we're back to the whole snacking nation, right? right. So we snack, and that snacking habit. Uh, will invariably, you know, bite us, right? And we'll end up failing. So absolutely. So we have to sort of regulate the snacking as well. Well, when I do that, I do, I find alternative snacks, right? Because the thing you can't have is the, is the wheat. (laughs) You can't have grain. So I'll have like the, the, the Trader Joe's and other, you know, alternative grocery stores have great things like cassava chips, that are, yeah. you know, they use a different kind of flour. And I find sure. that they give you that same satisfying crunch without necessarily giving you that, um, without giving you the, the feedback response. Yeah. yeah. And, and it perpetuates the snacking habit, right? Yeah. And, and can you, so the question is, all right, so this is a discussion I had several years ago with one of my master's students. I said, Tim, do you realize, because he was arguing for desserts and mm-hmm. he was arguing for snacks. I said, do you realize that in the archives of medical history, never has it ever been shown that malnutrition has resulted from lack of dessert? Ever. <laughs> it's never happened. I mean, we search and search and it's, there's no evidence of it. Nobody ever goes malnourished from lack of snacking or lack of dessert. Sure. Sure. I mean, but you, uh, yeah. Uh, okay. I mean, you're, well, I see your point. I mean, I see your point. Yeah. And, and is this where like the things like intermittent fasting are really useful yep. because they force yes. you to eat yep. in a certain window and then, and yep. so you can't snack outside. I mean, I find that if I'm Correct. doing intermittent fasting, that 10 o'clock reach for the like peanut butter and chocolate yep. stops happening because I can't eat anymore. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And that is probably one of the more significant breakthroughs in the you know the diet habits is this sort of uh, intermittent fasting approach and and absolutely it it helps the body detach itself from its cravings right, right. Um, and and so so you get the the cravings you avoid the cravings by this intermittent um, uh, by the intermittent um, fasting right mm-hmm. so you got to be careful once you start eating again that uh, that you make wise choices right. good food right yeah i, I have but seen it, i have seen the research that shows making mm-hmm. no other changes not even like the changes you're talking about making but just yep. eating inside of a single eight hour window sure. every day yep uh in 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 cause significant weight loss in in, yes. in the subjects basic physics right lack of calories right so so you're losing the weight by lack of car- calories but be careful right because remember there's a default Right. And so the default is the cravings and the cravings is what you've been habituated to. And this is where uh, these, um, you know, this uh, this um, uh, habit of snacking, this habit of drinking soda pop, this habit of eating French fries and chips and not enough vegetables and Mm -hmm. so forth really comes back and haunts you uh, eventually. So, yes, on the short term, it's just basic physics, energy in, Mm -hmm. energy out. So you'll lose weight. But on the long term, the you know sustainability uh, is not very good, yeah. right? So you got to be careful. Well, uh, again, you've given us a lot to chew on today. Uh, the book is "Insatiable: A Nation's Unappeasable Hunger." Uh, uh, thank you so much for your time, yeah. Dr. David Bissonnette. Yeah. And it can be you can get it at insatiableone.com. A link to your website in the show notes. That was going to be my next question. My last two questions yeah. that I asked you: One is how can people follow up with you aside from buying the sure. book? But I will okay. put a link to insatiableone.com in the show notes as well. Uh, yeah. uh, and then secondly, 
what is one piece of advice, one thing we could all start doing today that will make our lives a whole lot better? Based on the data, cut soda pump out of your out of your diet. Just cut it out, radical shift. If you can do that, um, you're going to feel a lot better and you'll be motivated to do the other radical shifts. This episode brought to you by RC Cola. I'm just kidding. Can you imagine? That would be hilarious. <laughs> thank, thank oh, you, that Dr. would be Reasonette. so compromising. <laughs> I appreciate your time. Thank you. All right. That's it for the show today. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you like the show, please rate, comment, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcast. It helps us out a lot. Follow up with John at facebook.com slash John Tesh. He's also on Instagram at John Tesh underscore IFYL. I'm Gib Gerard. You can find me at facebook.com slash Gib Gerard or at Gib Gerard on Instagram and Twitter. I try to respond to every DM, every mention of the show because ultimately I do the show for you guys. So thank you so much for listening.